This week, we are joined by Bree Demma. Bree got her start in the industry at Ethel's. From there, she worked at notable local establishments such as Wildcraft and Langdon Hall. Currently, Bree now runs the wine and beverage program at Fogo Island Inn on Fogo Island off the coast of Newfoundland. We discussed the merits of a no-tipping hospitality industry, whereby tips are worked into existing prices, which reflects the true price of food and service and results in better employee wages and benefits. We also discuss how Bree developed her love of wine and the processes involved in earning her various sommelier certifications. Enjoy the show. Okay, welcome to yet another episode of the Industry Podcast. Uh, my name's Kip. I'm your host. With me, as always, Mr. Dan Soretta. Things are good? Yeah, things are always good. No complaints here, man. Pretty things good. are fucking great for me today, yeah. I'll tell you that, because uh, we're recording on July 13th, and I just got to go ahead to open my goddamn bar up again on nice. Friday. Perfect. So I'm excited yes. about that. Yeah. Um, Lots of F-bombs to start the show, so that's good. Spend the rest of the week practicing shaking and holding trays because uh, I don't remember how to fucking do it anymore. <laughs> um, and I'm probably going to throw my rotator cuff out. Uh, so we have a great guest this week, as always. Miss Bree Demo will be joining us shortly. I uh, just like to get the housekeeping out of the way uh, at the beginning, as always. If you like the show, and obviously you do, please subscribe, rate, review. Also, if you are in the industry or listening to this and you want to be on the show, just DM us at the Industry Podcast on Instagram. That's the best way, the best and easiest way to get a hold of us. And uh, we'll tell your story here on the show. That's what we do here. We tell the stories of the people in the service industry. Correct. Okay, so let's get right to let's get right to doing that. Uh, today we have Bree Dama. Bree, how are you? Great. How are you? I'm. I'm Congratulations! Skipping on a rainbow today. <laughs> yeah. Existence. Cheers to you. That's awesome yes, news. Thank you very much. It's actually ironic that uh, I think I was having a drink with you on a patio last week, and now I'm yeah. zooming with you, and you're back in Newfoundland. That's right. Time yeah. flies. So uh, I've known our guest today for many, many years. We're good friends. So get that out of the way in the to to get the show going here. Uh, but well, let's uh, jump in at the beginning. You have been in the service industry for several years now. But, Couple, uh, yeah. Yeah, I remember your. Yeah, I didn't mean to make you sound old. Uh, <laughs> Aging is a privilege. Let's yes, all remember that. That's right. That's right. You started. Was your first job in the industry at Ethel's? Yeah, that was my second job. If you don't count my paper delivery route, that was my second job. And your first job was with Greenpeace, is that accurate? No, uh, first job was actually at a grocery store in the salad bar where I honed my wonderful knife skills oh, and nice. then brought them to the kitchen at Ethel's. Ah, and, and so you worked at Greenpeace after working at Ethel's or yes. during the same time? After. And just just because I think it's interesting, you know, we, we can start there and get it out of the way, and then we'll go into service sure. jobs. But what what exactly did you do for Greenpeace? Uh, I started off as a door canvasser for them. I think okay. you you probably remember me when I started at Ethel's with long dreadlocks and tie dye yeah. and listening oh, to Grateful yeah. Dead. Yeah, sure. You were hippie the fuck um, out. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Greenpeace was a part of my life. Um, after I worked at Balch Irish Pub. Uh, on King Street in Waterloo. Uh, 
and actually I ended up moving to Toronto and becoming a, a field manager for their dorm campus team. Oh, okay. So kind of motivating that for people. Right. It is um, harder than it seems in Toronto, let me tell you. Yeah, I can believe that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, not not a lot of reward for the work you're putting in either. You must feel like you felt must have felt like you were just pushing a boulder uphill at all times. Yes, pretty much. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very challenging. Okay, well, this show is not about saving the environment, although we should all try and do that. We will go back to where you began at uh, Ethel's Lounge, and you started. You did start in the kitchen, I remember. So. Uh, talk, right. to us, talk to us about that. What, uh, did, what did you like about working in the kitchen? What didn't you like about working in the kitchen? And what made you want to transition, or sorry, transition into working at the front of the house? Um, well, as you remember, I'm sure the, the group of people that worked at Apples were fantastic and made you feel like family. So that was definitely the highlight, I think, of understanding what it was to be a part of a culinary team. Mm -hmm. um, what inspired me out onto the floor was probably my general lack of culinary skills. Um, <laughs> right. And also, I would have to say, um, money for sure was a, course, a driving force uh, in that in that change. Um, it so, just seemed like fun. It just seemed like a good time. And we're, we were talking about actually, ironically, Dan and I were talking about this before we started recording today. Um, not everybody can make that switch, though. Uh, a lot of people work in the back of the house because that's where they're more comfortable, because they're maybe not as comfortable being a front-facing um, part of the business and, like, dealing with customers, don't like talking to people, they're a little socially awkward sometimes, but obviously that was not an issue for you. So did, when, when you got the job at Ethel's in the kitchen, were you just applying for a job and that job was open or were you like, I think I might want to be a cook? Um, a little bit of both. I was I was fascinated by the role. Um, there was a woman named Karen that worked there mm -hmm. that I had met um, through some mutual friends and she really talked it up to me, the culture and, and, the, and the role. So it was a little combination of needing a job and wanting to be a part of this new kind of okay. environment uh, that I had. But so you obviously must have thought you had the confidence and like the social skills to make that transition. Sure, I would say fake it till you make it. I'm definitely <laughs> yeah. introverted, so yeah. that that was. I, I do remember the challenge of overcoming that um, anxiety, walking up to strangers and talking to them. That's that's a real thing for sure. Yeah, but but and, yeah. And this is back in the day too, when we were like sledding half a patio and coming in and making drinks for ourselves and like it's not it was, a, it's that's like trial by fire for your first serving job it was my first shift was um the worst shift i've ever worked at a place in my life serving, <laughs> i have to say well, you um, were working with me were you no 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 okay. <laughs> just just the um getting getting kind of the baptism by fire experience is very overwhelming when you have 12 tables. It was a Taco Tuesday, actually. Mm -hmm. So super high volume, table flipping, right. uh, remembering orders that all look the same because every table is having the same food. Right. It was it was chaos. Yeah, it was it was yeah. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So for those who don't know that Ethel's still to this day has an insane Tuesday night where they sell what four tacos for two bucks. 
And, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it brings, and with having three, two universities and a college in town, it draws a crowd. Ooh, so, yeah. Everyone yeah. wants their water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, uh, it's something else. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's hard working right there. Yeah. But it was a life lesson that I carry with me still. So obviously, yeah. it didn't scare me away enough that I stayed away from serving or hospitality. Well, and we've had several people who worked at Ethos on this show so far, and I think that almost all of us to a T have said that it's just the greatest training ground ever oh, yeah. for the job. Like, how to organize your time, you're never going to learn at a better spot than that. No, I agree. Absolutely. Just, yeah, just so busy, and but also, it was just it's so busy, but they gave you, like, such huge sections. Yeah. Yeah. And One thing, though... Was right. having a team was having a team like of veterans like you and Jr and Shannon and Big Dan right. to coach me through it like that was that was huge for sure. Yeah, and I think it did that place too that it didn't have a whole lot of the competitiveness that some of the other places that in the industry can have where it's we we were all eager to help each other out because sure. we're we're stuck there together and we're the, like we're in the foxhole together at a place yeah. that's that busy and that's doing that much turnover, right? So yeah. what's, the, what's the point of keeping someone else down? For sure, yeah, no, it was great. Have you had, uh, just while we're on that topic, have you had that a situation at, at any other places where you work? And if you, don't, if you have, you don't necessarily have to mention the place if you'd rather not, but where it's a, more of a competitive sort of environment and less of a people working together? Yeah, for sure. I can name the place um, because I don't think it's a secret because a lot of Toronto is like that. Mm. Um, I And I wasn't working on the service team. I was um, working as the wine director. So uh, my income wasn't gratuity based. Right. But watching uh, the way that servers would, the level of work that servers were willing to do for each other um, in that competitive environment was very different than my experiences at Ethel's, um, for right. example. It was a lot of um, microcosm or, you know, this is my section, I'm going to work for my tips. Right. Which, from what I understand is, you know, uh, maybe the greater experience that you have as a server in Toronto. Yeah, and, and, and anywhere it can be that way as well. I think, like, I think it's funny, because if you have, designated sections where that's your section and these are the your customers that you're serving obviously that's going to be your top priority that's where you're making your money if you're not in a split tip environment but the thing about that i found at ethel's and i found it both ways as well but at ethel's was like okay yeah i'm going to take care of my shit first but then i'm available to help you out as well if mm -hmm. i'm if i'm good and you're fucked like that's that's realistic. You, that's that's yeah. That's fair to say. I guess there is always an element of looking after your own section before helping. Well, I mean, you out. have to, and right? I, that's where your yeah. money's coming from, right? Now, yeah. If you're, yeah, yeah. If you're in a split tip environment, it's a little bit different because everybody's making the same amount of money no matter what. So yeah, yeah. it's almost. Now, what are your thoughts about that in general? Like now you've done management and everything. Do you have a because I have sort of come around to the point, unless it's like a massive place where it doesn't, it's not realistic to do something like this. I've kind of come around to the idea that split tip is the way to go. I I 100% agree with you. In my opinion, I currently work for a no tipping establishment um, right. that operates on a profit sharing system. 
that we would call um, employee incentive, but it, it spreads beyond the hospitality department, it goes to the entire hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm of the mind that ideally we're going to move to a no tipping hospitality world in Canada. I just, I think it's going to be a bit of a struggle to get there. And what, okay, yeah, and what is your, I'm glad you brought that up because I was, I, like to, I don't know if you're interviewing yourself here, but I was going to ask you that, that yeah. <laughs> um, if we, like, if that, if, what are your thoughts on that? Like, what are your thoughts on moving to an environment where tipping is not an issue and it's, instead it's a higher wage? Um, I think, I mean, you can, you can look at examples of where that works, like the UK or there are other European countries, exactly Australia. Um, so it's a proven, it, it works. It's a proven system. Um, I think that it's going to take a, a major adjustment for our consumers, our guests to understand what the true price of food and service is yes. in, in a restaurant and to agree to pay that sight unseen to how the service is going to go. Right. Uh, and if you, you trust, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go. No, go ahead. If you trust, if you trust the establishment that you're going to, um, if they have a good reputation, then you should trust that the service is good and not okay. reward so happens. Yeah. So that's what I was going to ask you. Because, like, do you think it's going to affect the service in a way that, I mean, it's an incentive-based world that we live in now, where it's, I know if I get better service, then I'm going to get. I de- like hypothetically a better reward for that, right? I mean, there's cheap people sure. are cheap people, but like in general, the better job you do, the more money you make. That's the what system we live in now. So, do you think there's a risk that if we go to the other system, that the level of service is gonna go down in general, I mean, or maybe just with certain people? I don't know. I think there's a risk of that for sure, and it's gonna look different across different types of establishments um but if you're in something like fine dining or um if you're you tell yourself as a wine bar you can incentivize your staff with other things like training opportunities or um uh progression in their education those kinds of things i think there's the ability to that would also be a, a going cause for the owners which puts like smaller places at a bit of a risk because again eventually like I, that's a great that's a great idea. It's a perfect world yeah. where, say, at my place, I could reward them with like a training course in like some of the wine courses that you've done or whatever. But now I have yeah. to pay for that, which means, like, uh, I see. You see what I'm saying? So, like, um, if you, you build that all into your your costing, right? I mean, then, you, would, then, you would frankly build the customer for that. Yes, and that in some keeps, way that just keeps going up. At a certain point, for the cuts, like at what point? I guess my concern is that at what point does the customer say enough's enough? Yeah, I see what you mean, and especially in a world where it would be, we would live in this kind of duality where some people would do it and some people wouldn't. Mm-hmm. For example, um, here in Newfoundland, uh, Mallard Cottage, which is a quite a famous restaurant, they've just come out with the fact that when they reopen or during their reopening process, they're switching to no tipping and the reaction you see on this Twitter feed that announces it is wildly different some people are so supportive and then other people are you know why would I go there if everything costs more and I don't get to dictate what I tip so it's gonna be well it's gonna be an interesting shift and interesting challenge for sure yeah and I think that uh, I mean in a weird way it almost 
and I don't mean this to sound, and well, fuck it, I exactly mean it to sound this way, that it's going to weed out the cheap people a little bit, like, if we move to that world, because a lot of people do use the tip portion of their experience at a bar or restaurant as a way to save money. Right, and that's not that's not the purpose. That's not what it's for. That, no. Yeah, that's, it's a tough situation, but it's one that I think we just have to continue to, to force people to face. You know, if you're going to dine out or um, have a service-based experience, you should know what the cost of that is. Right. It's not what you decide it is. And I, here, another way of looking at it, too, can be that if we move to a system like that, and then it's the places that don't, that, that elevate their service instead of declining the level of their service that are gonna stand out, and those are gonna be the places that people more wanna go to, so we could get competitive sure. between bars and restaurants that way, where it's like, no, fuck it, we're gonna give the best service. Job security is gonna be real cool, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, health benefits are gonna be pretty awesome. Right, yeah. So, I, I so yeah, I guess it, I, I, it could work both ways. I just, I, I have two minds about it, and I do understand your point where it's, where the truth is, it, it, it's been proven to be a working system in several places of the world. They've been doing it forever. Yeah. Like, so it, it, it's just gonna take a massive amount of adjustment for, yeah, for, for sure. not for just the, the, uh, the employees, but the guests. For sure. I think that, um, as you say, a tip pooling scenario is kind of the, the nice stepping stone to no tipping yes. environment. Well, yeah. Um, and, Sorry, go ahead. I, I think both, both also um, kind of balance out the inequality that we see between front and back of house as well. Right, yeah, that's true. So that's a good thing, right? Um, what are you guys drinking? Uh, we are drinking a Pinot Grigio, believe it or not, which I almost never drink, but this is the Justi uh, that uh, oh, nice. a friend of the podcast and friend of yours uh, Johnny Goodtimes is uh, schleps around town for his. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it. I endorse that wine. Yeah, it's good. I'm like, I'm not a Pinot Grigio guy. I'm really not. But uh, this one I like. It's it's not doesn't have that the kind of sweet back end that some of them have, or or just like that like really short finish that a lot of them have. Yeah, totally. No, I drink that wine for sure. Oh, see, it's approved, and as we're going to get into later, if Bree drinks it, it must be good. So, <laughs> um, all right, well, I'm, I'm glad that we talked about that a little bit. I think it's, because I, I, I don't know, I, I agree with you that I think this is the world we're moving towards, and everybody's just going to have to get on board. I also think when we're all coming out of this pandemic situation, there's a whole fucking lot of adjustments are going to happen for employees and guests as well, right? Yeah. And, and a lot of that has to do with pricing. Like, we can't, like, my theory on this, and you can tell me if you agree with me, is that the places that are really going to struggle coming out of this are the middle of the road spots. Because people are either going to be looking for bargain basement pricing, or they're going to be looking for an unbelievable experience. And, yeah. and the middle of the road spot is just, there's, I don't know if there's a place for them anymore. It's certainly going to be a challenge. The like casual kind of the casual dining environment. You mean like yeah, the, like, or like I don't want to like, name any brands, but I think we know. Yeah, what we don't have to. Like, but like let's yeah. let's talk about a brand that maybe doesn't exist anymore as an example, and that'll be easier. Like a Ponderosa. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, like yeah. a place that's like kind of or independent. 
Yeah, it did better yeah. place because yeah. the Swiss Chalet still kind of along those lines, but because they got the well, sure, like, like, it'll be all right. And a larger chain's obviously going to do yeah. well, but I mean, like that's the, should be or they have a better chance of doing yeah. well. But I think those yeah. places might be in trouble as well. And um, but I do think that, like, yeah, an independent place of that vein, it's going to be hard for them. It's going to be really hard. Actually, I just heard today that one of my favorite spots in Toronto is not going to be reopening. And broke my heart a little bit but I know we're going to get more news like that for the rest of the year which is terrible to think of yeah there's been a couple of here in Kitchener as well already that have announced that they're not um reopening but I I, I like I don't know it, it's either going to force you to go low or go high with your sure. with what you're offering and both work right like uh, there's yeah. sometimes I like to go and just have three dollar Bud Lights and no, other times you want to like I'm just gonna say that doesn't sound like you at all. No, I just made that up. <laughs> I know. Uh, I have a, a dear friend that works at Langdon Hall, and um, he talks about the wine sales in the last month or so, um, or since they've been open, I should say. It's almost been like the Roaring Twenties. Like people are just buying these crazy expensive wines because it's the first time they've been out of the house in right. two months. So there is the opportunity for the that kind of spending and behavior but is that sustainable i don't know well yeah that's going to correct itself after a while right yeah. especially yeah. i know for me i've been like spending like a rock star right now because i'm still fat on syrup money but <laughs> <laughs> eventually i'm going to get a pay cut when i go back to work so oh boy that's right well good old ownership eh yeah fuck who does it why why do people do it I'm um, <laughs> okay so uh getting the conversation back on to you uh, so you work at Ethel's for a while and then you, where do you go from there? You went to Falcha. We don't really need to talk a whole lot about that place. I don't think. I have like, um, PTSD listening to Irish music slightly, but <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, after, after that, I moved to Toronto, um, to work for Greenpeace. Uh, came back to the, the region and worked for the charcoal group at Wildcraft. Um, mm. For a good long time, that was that was a, a seven or eight years, I believe. Were you one of the openers uh, at that place? Yeah, I yeah. was. Yeah, and uh, I like snuck in just under the wire of like their opening. I was like, I came in halfway through their training. Okay. Uh, procedure. And did you yeah, find, the, did you enjoy that process of like kind of the excitement of being involved in a new thing? I know it, it ended up being a more of a chain spot, but that well, it was a chain spot, but that was kind yeah. of before they really hit their stride with opening a bunch of fucking places, right? Like they kind of yeah. had the, the steakhouse and the pasta spot. And then this was like their whole new thing where it was kind of like that middle to road casual fine dining type. Yeah, they touted yeah. it as um, exactly that casual fine dining. Mm -hmm. But, um, and this was the moment of my, that flipped the switch for my wine career. Um, mm -hmm. They had a sommelier by the name of Matthew Warden. Okay. And uh, he had come from Toronto. He had worked for Caesar Lee, um, which, you know, in the 90s was the chef. Um, and so had this incredible experience and this kind of very metropolitan view of hospitality that he, he brought to the, the business. So even though it was casual fine dining in Waterloo, it had this kind of flair to it mm -hmm. for me. That's really what kind of hooked me and what made me start asking questions about wine and um, learning more about it and what 
gave me the wine bug. Right. Okay. So let's just get into that now then, since you brought it up. So this has essentially been your kind of passion ever since then is wine and learning more about it. Uh, and then now like getting to the point where you're teaching it, teaching people about wine as well. Uh, what, uh, just describe to us, a little, well, first of all, if you want to give us a rundown a little bit of the credentials you've achieved, and then also talk about what excites you about it. Sure. So um, I started with the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, um, which is a program uh, that is based out of the UK, but is nationally or internationally recognized. Mm-hmm. And I took that all the way through to its diploma level. Um, so how many levels is that? Before, uh, so how, how long does it take to do a level approximately? Out of curiosity, um, level two, I believe, is uh, ten weeks. Level three is the equivalent of uh, maybe a semester. Level uh, four would be a two-year study. Oh wow! Okay. I did cool. the, the two-year program. Yeah. Uh, I passed that in 2015. Uh, in and around there, I decided that. Um, I would attempt a sommelier accreditation as well because it sounds pretty bulky when you work in a restaurant and you go talk to your guest about wine and they say, are you the sommelier? And you say, no, I have my diploma from the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. It sounds kind of cumbersome. But, uh, okay, let me ask you about that though, uh, because really that's what, that's the word that people recognize as a guest. And there's no reason why they would know anything else. Like I don't expect them to understand that either, but the amount of knowledge you even get from, I will even say, like I can highly recommend just doing two levels of it. Like that that changes your ability to understand wine enormously. Um, And also to like understand the differences between different grapes and also to explain it to people. I think full circle, having gone through all the wine education that I've gone through, uh, I can say that the diploma was the most rewarding in terms of um, giving me the best baseline and understanding for how wine is made, how we uh, how we grow it, how we make it, how we sell it across the world. It's, it's a very broad mm-hmm. base. Whereas the sommelier um, studies, they're fantastic. They're much more focused on kind of a minutia um, aspect where it's, it's, it's different, but I don't find it as deep in, in terms of the service. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Just because uh, sure. I'm not even sure I understand what you mean, but. Okay, fair. Um, so to, to go into um, some of the higher levels of sommelier certification, um, you have to know uh, everything there is to know about every producer from every region, um, every vintage, which if you sell wine on the restaurant floor, you, you may encounter those issues. You may encounter those questions. But um, rare, probably rarely. It depends on the size of the program you're working with. Certainly when I was at Langdon, I had to have a deeper base of knowledge than X, Y, or Z. But um, the diploma prepared me a bit more for just an overall understanding of okay, so if uh, this is how the grapes were grown and this is where it's from and this is the year it's from, uh, you get a better idea or you're better prepared to make a guess about the wine if you don't, as opposed to having to know it all. Right, right, right. Uh, Yeah, and I I even found from even just like uh, the first course I did was the level two because if you 
drink wine at all. If you're a wine fan, you kind of can skip level one. Um, yes. So, but even after doing the second level, like the, the most valuable thing it taught me was how to buy better wine more cheaply. Isn't that what we're all trying to do? <laughs> Honestly, yeah, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I, I honestly, I mean, these courses aren't cheap after a while, don't get me wrong, and they do take a lot of studying. But, uh, it, like, if anyone, I, I'll just say this right now anyone interested in wine at all, I recommend at least doing level two of the W set because, like I said, you can go to the liquor store, go to vintages, and realize, holy shit, I've been under this assumption that paying $40 for a bottle of wine means I'm getting a better bottle of wine than if I paid $16 for it. And sometimes that's true, but not always. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, okay. So then you, so it's a sommelier um, thing is just, it's definitely, would you say that that's more, the knowledge is better preparing you to maybe teach people? I would say it's, um, it makes you a better, um, on the floor salesperson. Okay. There are skills that you learn about running a beverage program. It's very hospitality related, oh, which okay. is which is great. There's honestly, I, I I can't speak badly about either program or choice. They both made me a better person at what I do sure. now. It I think you different. just need to, yeah, you just need to research what is more relevant to your experiences or your desires for sure. Um, what uh, what started you on this path? Like, what do you? Th what was it about wine specifically? Like, I know we all like to drink it. Like, but it was there something about it specifically that like you were like, "Fuck, this is what I'm into now." Yeah, I think. Um, well, certainly it was from tasting good wine. There's a difference for sure um, between kind of the inexpensive stuff you buy at the LCBO and the general list versus something that has been intentionally made, speaks of the vintage of the grape of the winemaker. Um, so tasting wines like that definitely flipped the switch. We'll have to thank Johnny Goodtimes for that, actually. Okay. <laughs> Although credit his way, he worked for a wine importing agency at the time, and so we did drink some pretty pretty tasty wine. Um, yeah, it was that, it was, it was kind of that storytelling in a bottle experience where you actually can sense the, the grapes, the place, maybe a little bit of the, the philosophy of the person who made it. Um, and it spoke of something. Mm -hmm. So tasting wine like that really made me fall in love with it. So yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that, actually. Like what we're obviously going to talk a lot about wine on this episode. But um, like when you say like how like how for people who are not that into it, how like does a um, a vintage or a specific bottle of wine speak to the winemaker in a way that like hmm. the layman would not understand? So, uh, yeah, so, uh, well, I mean, I think with a, a little bit of practice, anybody can really learn to be a great taster. Let's get that out there um, right away. I think it's, there's some myth that to be good at tasting wine, um, you have to have a natural ability. You don't, I'm proof of that. Mm -hmm. um, I think when you start to see the differences, you start to see the variety. It's almost like if you only had chocolate ice cream for your whole life and then you got to taste everything at Baskin Robbins. Right, crazy, right. right? So when you start to experience and, and grow your 
um, experience with tasting different wines, it, it's really a lot easier to fall in love with it. Mm. Um, everything affects the way a wine tastes. Uh, for sure, the, the, the grape that's chosen, um, the, the place it comes from, the climate, the year it was made, all these things kind of lend itself into the um, what came from the natural world to, to make the wine. And then you have the imprint of the grape grower, you have the imprint of the winemaker, how it was matured, all those things kind of. Why, come did, why did they like pick the grapes by machines or by hand? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That would be uh, a very astute taster, I think, to come, come up with that difference, but. Well, I sure. don't know if you could taste it, but I like, I don't know if I would, like, I'm not saying I could tell the difference if I'm tasting the wine. I'm just saying it definitely affects the taste, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. it, yeah. So, okay, so that's kind of, uh, that kind of gives us the basics of that. And, and you just, you just sort of fell in love with this whole, the whole notion of learning more about it. And like you said, you yeah. taste, so you're tasting more different kinds. And now you're, now you're just kind of, you decide this is kind of what I want to spend my life doing. Yeah, it was, uh, it wasn't, the role that I learned about in high school at the guidance counselor's office to direct me <laughs> to university or it was obviously a later in life encounter. Um, they told me, I I was, I, they told me I should be a lawyer. So now, Did they? I'm, now I'm just grilling people on a podcast. There you go. You're getting <laughs> to the truth of it though. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it kind of, it brought together nature and culture in this way that, um, and, everything that goes into those two things in this way that was um, the most pleasurable and joyous thing, you know, you don't, well, I shouldn't say you don't, I drink wine alone, but the best way to enjoy wine is when you're at a table and you have food and you have conversation. Um, how can you not fall in love with that? Right. And it's like, and oh, fuck, man, that feeling when you're like at the dinner table with somebody yeah. who all, uh, is also really into wine and you're just, and the two of you are just like, fuck. Like, yeah, it wine. can be yeah. magical for sure. Yeah, and I think really we're a touch robbed of that um, growing up as Canadians. I think in Europe or in, I shouldn't say, in, in a lot of wine growing areas or uh, European countries where there's a history of wine drinking, I think that's a little bit more, you learn that at an earlier age. Yeah, like 14. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. When I was 14, I was still just like emptying out half a bottle of vodka and pouring orange yeah. juice into it. Oh yeah, same. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't yeah. want to. I mean, it has the same result, but it's not nearly as good an experience. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. so. Now, okay, at this point, you get really super into wine. And I don't know, I feel like we should just be talking more about this and less with you about the specific spots you've worked at, but we will get sure. to those as well. Um, you decide to like, talk to us about the Italian experience. Says, I, yeah, I that's, you know. uh, that was a huge, huge, pivotal point in my life, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so I... Well, importantly, what happened after Wildcraft was I got my first sommelier job. Um, and it was at one of the most um, important wine institutions in Ontario. Oddly enough, as a brand new sommelier, you wouldn't think uh, mm. I would have a shot there. But for some reason, they took a chance on me. Thank goodness. Um, Langdon Hall in right. Cambridge. Mm -hmm. um, so to give you a scope, that's a, um, a wine cellar of 
1500 selections, something like that. Right. It's it's just a, a massive uh, selection of old wines across all wine producing regions. So it was kind of like a another fake it till you make it point in my life where I had to really um, put a lot of effort into learning uh, and learning quickly. Mm -hmm. um, in that time, I went to a, a wine tasting event in Toronto and met a guy named Ian Dagada. Um, he's a he's an Italian Canadian wine writer, uh, and he was also the wine director for uh, uh, Italy, which is the kind of the largest Italian wine festival in Verona. And through that, they have a, a school, Italy International Academy, and so. <laughs> spent five minutes talking to this guy. He's like, oh, you work at Langdon Hall? That has a lot of cred. Why don't you come to Italy? And really? Just like yeah, that? Yeah, it was, it was literally the, uh, the reputation of the institution that I worked for. Oh, which, wow, that's great. I mean, if that's not inspiration to punch above your weight class in terms of trying for a good position or a good job, I don't know mm -hmm. what it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so then you go? Yep, I was, yeah, I, uh, I, went, to, I went to judge the uh, wine competition and uh, no I'm sorry I'm confused um, he invited me to a, a, a summer festival in Piedmont which mm -hmm. was more of a gathering of professionals a summer but, festival in Piedmont sounds like, like <laughs> I just want like that these are like fever dreams I have like just about like just that I want at one point in my life I want one of my chapters of my biography to be titled <laughs> summer festival in Piedmont Kip, I'll make you even more jealous. It was in the town of Barolo. <laughs> oh, you're killing me. <laughs> but through that is where I, um, from that encounter, met some other people, and that's where I ended up going to the Italy Academy the following um, winter. So this all happened in the same kind of time okay. period. Yeah. And, and so when you come, so you study there, and when you come back, what is the title you've accrued from your studies? Um, so for that, I there's there's a kind of a two-tiered um, accreditation. I got the um, ambassador. There's also an expert level, which um, would be above that. But holy fuck, having... there's so many wine course shit. Like I don't know how you like I honestly don't know how to keep track of it all. Like I mean I know you've done so many of them, but mm -hmm. how do you keep track of like because that's completely separate than. Sommelier or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. So you're an ambassador now of Italian wine, but you're also an expert of Italian wine. Um, educator, educator for a different Italian school. <laughs> Can't keep track of it. I think I think that it kind of lends itself to the conversation we had about the sommelier. You know, you have this broad base of knowledge, but it, it's it's very lateral. You have to learn the same things about a wine region that you don't really enjoy as you do of one that you care deeply about. Whereas this was a way to just focus on one that you a place care I cared about. really deeply about. Yeah. And in the world of wine, that's the thing. There's like, you can really get like, and you were just talking about like, I really love that region and the world and the wine they make. That's just me personally. But, mm -hmm. and I think you're in the same boat maybe. So the, so like focusing on a pinpoint of an area is kind of, after you get to a certain level of your education, which is more than almost what the vast people who are going to be listening to this, that um, you want to get a little bit more specific. 
And yeah. so for uh, tell me if this is a fair comparison, but like when I, like I, in the basic courses of like W set, they talk about like um, <sighs> distinguishing between like premier crew or grand crew or whatever, and they talk about it as like the the pinpoint in the middle of a spiral is when you're getting to like the grand crew or whatever, right? Yeah. For a region. Yeah. And now that's kind of what you're now doing with your specific taste in wine is you're getting to this pinpoint in the middle of the spiral of all of the wine and all the grapes that you've learned about. Yeah, for sure. There was definitely a, a good chunk of my educational path that was spent building the foundation. And I think that's super key. And WSET was the major part of that, huge part of that. Um, court of master sommeliers as well, but mm -hmm. yeah, so build a broad base, but let's be honest, like there's so much variety. There's the world of wine is so huge and we've gotten to a place in history where every region who makes it can pretty much more or less do it well. Right. Um, the that, that, that wasn't always the case like no, years certainly. ago or whatever. Right? Taste so. wine from the nineties from Ontario and you'll, you'll agree, but <laughs> Yeah. Um, not a slight against Ontario wines, by the way. I love them. No, because that's another spot that, to your point, that has become fantastic at making wine. Oh, absolutely. And and everybody, kind of the access to technology and information has never been um, more supported as in terms of how the industry performs. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like you don't have time to learn at all. You well, you could, but you could. I find my time better spent just focusing on what I really care about. Right. And so there was must have been a point where you made that shift in your own mind where you're like, holy fuck, this like I can spend all my time learning about every fucking thing or yeah. I can get more specific and be like, I'm just going to learn the most about this. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, um, there was a there was a time period too. Well, when I thought I was going to go for my master sommelier uh, certification, which is kind of the, the pinnacle of the sommelier path. Yeah, can you tell, um, before you, not to interrupt you, but before you get on to why you changed your mind about that, talk to us about what that, what that involves for people who haven't seen like SOM or whatever, like. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so I sat, uh, I have the advanced certification, which is the, the third tier, the level below the, the master SOM. Mm -hmm. um, that took me two attempts and I would probably say several years to attain. Okay. Um, and again, I'm just going to cut in every now and then just yeah, to be a little bit more specific. But like, I remember picking you up to go for a drink one time and there were like fucking maps and books all over your floor. And like, yeah. and that was just you trying to do that course. Yeah. Like, yeah, the amount of that studying was... you were doing. I remember you telling me you had to move out with your roommate from move out from with your roommate because she had a dog and that just didn't work for how you spread your books out. Yeah, that was, yeah. <laughs> um, it, that was part of the reason why I moved to Toronto. I mean, the job opportunity that I took was one thing, but um, it was also closer to my, my mentors and my tasting group. Like it was a pretty serious undertaking. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can, I can say that I, there's a really great community in Kitchener Waterloo um, that supports sommeliers. Um, yes. So I, I think now I wouldn't have had to maybe make that choice, but back then it was kind of uh, the move that, that had to happen. 
And it would involve um, tasting with my group two to three times a week, studying three hours a day. So, it was pretty, pretty crazy. And do you feel like, do you feel like you would have been able to do it without the community? Like, do you, is, is part of it needing to taste with other people? Yeah, for sure. It is. A hundred percent. And uh, it's not that it's impossible without that. And I know people who are super creative with how they navigate um, access issues like not living near a major city or um, living in a good wine market. It's possible for sure. Just mm. knowing myself, it wouldn't have, <laughs> it would have been too great a roadblock. And it's got to help though, right? Like, yeah. I don't care who you are. Uh, like just bouncing ideas off other people. What are you tasting out of this? What are you like? That's got to help. For sure. Yeah. For tasting is super critical. Plus it's really effing expensive to oh, yeah. buy like that's a whole other issue unless you have a coravin or um yeah it's a whole other issue uh also there's a service component to, to those exams so you have to uh interact in a service scenario that's pretty hard to practice when you're by yourself in your living room <laughs> serving to your goldfish yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. so uh so I, I cut you off in the middle of this but i, I didn't want to get into like how difficult what you had already done was, just so mm -hmm. people understand. But let's now talk about the level jump to go from advanced to master. Yeah, that's, well, I can't say I know for certain, but I know that um, a, a few of my peers that I had sat the advanced with did go on pretty quickly to master. And I just, I applaud them for what they did. I know one fellow, his name is Jose. He's the sommelier for Hamilton golf, golf course, I believe. Um, he has four young children and he would get up at like four or five in the morning just to get those few hours of study Sorry, time in. Yeah. yeah, so I know there's, yeah, there's a lot of resources out there. Certainly um, you can reach out to mentors to help with that, but yeah, it was, and so at, at, at some point you decide, it's like, I'm good. I don't need to, I don't need that. Yeah. So well, I applied for it. I applied to sit the exam. Um, and then I moved to Newfoundland where right. <laughs> I'm nowhere near a tasting group. I'm nowhere near um, any kind of support. And it just, the challenge kind of became too great. So, so was that, would you say that was it more than you just, decided it wasn't important to you as as important to you or what, like what or a combination of the two what like what yeah. made the decision it was a combination of the two okay. for sure there there was a geographical reason um but i also i kind of understood where my passion and my heart was and it had really trying to study for the masters really took away a lot of the joy i found in the subject and I think we all know how successful you can be when you don't care about what right. you do. So yeah, yeah and it's funny. Like that kind of throws it back to almost every job in this industry. It's kind of hard after a while. Like I know I was really into, for instance, cocktail crafting for a very long time. When I opened Rabbit, that was like my thing. And then I just kind of got like it just wasn't fun for me anymore like i didn't enjoy the creative process of it anymore i just and i still don't now i still don't know and as a result i'm not creative in that fashion anymore i'm like i just turn it over to people who can do it better than me like 
yeah. the, the first guest, who you can listen to on the archives, Dan Collins of the industry, who's now my GM and head bartender. And he's, he's young and he's still got the, he's still got the love for it. And I just got over it. Now I don't get like, I just, I don't have it in me. I, I feel like it's drained my creativity. And I, that, if you keep doing the same thing over and over as a job or as a study, then it can really suck the love out of it for you. Yeah, that's not where we want to be. So that's no. not where I want to be. Yeah. Right. Okay, so let's talk but, about you. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, you please go ahead. Well, fuck, it's my show, Brie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's talk about you moving out to Newfoundland. Uh, <laughs> that's because this is a, I mean, it's a really cool thing you guys decided to do out there. Talk to me about what was going on out there in Fogo and talk yeah. about what drew you to want to go out there. For sure. So um, I guess I should start by saying I met my life partner at Langdon Hall. Mm -hmm. um, so he's, uh, he was in oh, the I kitchen. Thought it, I thought it was the goldfish. What? No, that ended a long time ago. Uh, no, so uh, there was a chef at Langdon named Jonathan Gushu, and he had attained some pretty great uh, recognition and accolades for, for that place. Um, I missed working with him by about six months. Mm -hmm. I got there six months after he left. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, Dacha, my partner, he, he had also gone to Langdon with the intent to work for him, but missed him in, in the career transition. And so Jonathan ended up going out to, well, he he ran the Berlin for, owned and ran the Berlin for some time, but ended up coming out to Fogo Island. And so it was actually Dacha coming out here um, to do what we thought was just going to be a three month little stage before he came back to Ontario and we started something else, um, turned into him convincing me to come out for a visit and then us fully kind of making the transition out here. So, but there was, was also a transition in, so uh, what's the name of the resort? Fogo Island Inn. Fogo Island Inn. Okay, so there was also a decided shift in and a transition in what they were trying to do at the inn, right? With regards to level yes. service. They were trying to level up in a way. Yeah, there's definitely, um, well, there's a few there's a few things that I fell in love with. I mean, the culinary team for the last year was um, working with some of the best in the industry and uh, really getting to experience a different kind of level of cuisine in that sense. Um, we yeah we're we're still aiming for uh, well actually we just got uh, we're number three hotel in the world, according to Travel and Leisure, which is oh, fantastic. Shit. Really? That's yeah, we found that out yeah. two days ago, which is pretty cool. In the world? Yeah. We've, Holy fuck. We've, we've made the, the top in Canada, top resort hotel in Canada, but now we've, we've broken onto the world list, which is... That's amazing. Pretty wild, yeah. Um, there's that aspect. Like, there's always that drive for excellence, but the part that I loved about this project is that it's um it's actually owned by a charity it's a social enterprise um so the whole purpose of the inn is to be an economic driver and kind of a window and a link to the outside world um for the outside world to come to fogo and to better understand the culture and the community here um and all the all the um, profits go to 
this Shorefest organization, which is the charity that um, oversees different projects, including an art project, um, a geology project, community outreach programs, and that kind of thing. Oh, so wow. That's, it's that's, pretty cool. I mean, that is pretty cool, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, you've been out there for a while now. And talk, like, talk to us a little bit about, like, the excitement of that kind of a, like, being involved in that kind of a project. Because I know, or maybe I don't know, but I, I seem to remember that, like, you coming was a big deal for them as well because they didn't really have somebody to run a proper wine program. That's right. They had never had a sommelier. I was their first. Um, it seems crazy for a, for a resort that's so well yeah. reviewed. So I guess also um, in perspective, it's a seven-year seven-year-old inn, so it's it's okay. not a a, oh, um, a a long established wine oh, program. I didn't know. Place. That. Okay. Um, so yeah, seven years old. Um, also, it was it was built and is staffed by Fogo Islanders predominantly, so. I don't know how much there was uh, a source of wine. I can tell you for free. There's, there's the wine culture out here is pretty much non-existent. Right. Um, it, it's a big rum drinking culture and beer drinking culture. Mm. Um, so that was a new aspect. And so when they opened, they had hospitality professionals to a point, but this was kind of the the first time they had started to put the the, the people in place to really drives the culinary program forward. So that's kind of interesting. So what do you think happened there? Like they just said, like, oh, let's open a resort. It's a beautiful space. It's a beautiful island. Like, and then yeah. they were just like, we'll figure out the details later type thing. No, not at all. Um, they definitely had, uh, I think they were focusing on finding the identity of what life was like here or what, how to best give that window. And wine isn't necessarily a part of that. Right. So it's all pirates. It's all pirates. Exactly. <laughs> well, I live in Jobat's Arm, who, which is a town named after a man who apparently deserted Captain Cook's ship. So. Oh, there <laughs> you go. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. So, so how, very how, honest. How far um, is that from the end? Uh, where I live. Yeah. Um, it's in the same community, so I I could walk to work in. 10 minutes, maybe. Oh, okay, that's good. And yeah. how far is, just for people who don't know, how far is um, Fogo Island from Newfoundland? How, like, yeah. how, how, do you, how do you get yeah, there? Yeah, how do you get there? Okay, so how you get there. So if you're starting in Kitchener-Waterloo, you would drive to the Toronto airport, catch your early morning flight. Uh, you would go through Halifax. You would end up in Gander, Newfoundland, um, which if you've seen Come From Away, the, the musical, um, that's where all the 9-11 planes. I don't, like when, planes I don't like when people sing when they need to just, just be talking. So I haven't seen too many musicals. So you're in Gander, um, which is kind of the north um, northeastern corner. Uh, from there, you would drive an hour. Then you'd get on a ferry and you'd ride that ferry for an hour. And then you'd get onto Fogo Island. And then you drive across Fogo for maybe... 30 minutes and you're at the end. Okay, so you just made this trip like literally last week, right? Yeah. Uh, how long was the full experience from um, the time you left your door to the time you got to your door? Yeah, so we left Toronto at 7 a.m. and we got home at, on the six o'clock boat. So we were here at 7.45, eight o'clock. So 
Yeah, a twelve-hour experience. Yeah, if yeah. not, well, slightly more. Uh, that's and crazy. It's the journey of intention. <laughs> but it's but it's worth it. It sounds like. Like, talk, talk, can you talk to us a little bit about the the resort itself? Like, what? Yeah, to, for sure. Sell sell the eight people who are listening to this podcast <laughs> on uh, why they should come there. Uh, so it's a the natural world here is absolutely stunning. Like, it's just a magical place. Um, the inn itself is beautiful. It was uh, designed by an architect named Todd Saunders, who he, I believe, is from Gander, um, currently resides in Europe. But yeah, it's, it's a long-lost long relative of me. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think of that. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. It's 29 rooms. It's not too big. It's just the right size. Um, the dining room, which is my favorite room, of course, um, it faces... It looks out into the Labrador, where the Labrador Sea meets the North Atlantic, which is this like, just wild landscape. Like, not even joking, in a year, you can watch, of course, beautiful sunsets, um, whales jumping, migratory birds, icebergs drifting by. Like, it's, that's crazy. it's, that's beautiful. Uh, so here's a question for you. Now that Kushu uh, is gone, who is running the culinary program there? Yeah, so uh, there, is an executive sous chef named Tim Charles. Um, he had been there since the beginning, along with my dear sweet Dacha, who is the chef de cuisine. Is he there? Want to bring him in real quick? I don't know. Are you there, darling? No, I think he went outside. Okay. Uh, yeah. we, I thought we might get like a little drive-by. Uh, <laughs> okay, so obviously the experience of staying in this inn is probably for this is a treat yourself experience. It's not for me when yeah. I'm for my $3 Bud Lights. Uh, Prime no. Minister stayed there for Christmas a couple of years ago. Who did? Uh, uh, Trudeau, Justin Trudeau. Oh, so yeah, he's got more money than me. Years ago, yeah. yeah, I missed him, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I know it's... Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a pricey experience to stay there, I would imagine. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah. but, but it's because you're trying to do, I mean, when you really think about it, you're trying to do an incredible hotel experience, but also an incredible restaurant experience at the same time, right? And a great, mm -hmm. now, now a great wine experience now that you're there. I mean, you get what you pay for, I guess, at the end of the day, but. Mm -hmm. but for sure. Not, like what, uh, do you want to tell us like what, Let's say for so okay so let's just talk about the nuts and bolts of it. If if, if I go there, I'm gonna pay whatever to just stay there. Yeah. So let's say the average is I um the room rates are slightly different, but it would be something like eighteen hundred two thousand dollars a night. A night. Um, and that's inclusive of all of your you know food and quite a few of your excursion experiences. Okay, so you, it's two thousand dollars a night to stay there, but that, but you do get to eat. Yeah, so in that sense, more of a resort style. Right. And what about booze? No, that's uh, that's additional. Yeah, additional. Woo! You'd be in trouble. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> oh, I would be in trouble. I'm already. In, I'm in trouble just thinking about it. <laughs> I, I, I'm just trying to calculate my serve. <laughs> now, are you guys busy all year round or just more like through like spring, summer, fall, like winter time? Huh? Um, 
the the winter business is starting to pick up i would say but it's certainly more clustered in the spring summer fall um easier easier to get there right with the ferry yeah and do the and probably obviously a nicer experience in the summer but i i would imagine that that landscape looks pretty cool in the winter as well uh do you is there a rate difference um no that doesn't change so no matter what no matter what you're taking you're taking the two grand yeah. Okay. Uh, so what's, uh, let's talk about what's in the future for Breed Dama. Are you thinking that you're staying there indefinitely or I know you and I had talked previously about maybe you and your partner coming back and like opening your own place, whatever, and maybe that's still on the table, but for now you're obviously happy where you are. Yeah, this is, this is something that we kind of have, we've made some commitment to, to, to see through till um, in the best possible to leave it in the best possible place, but I think in the in our hearts we always have had um, the desire to own our own business. Isn't that a bit of a hospitality dream? Like, doesn't don't a lot of people? It you tell me a, you're living it. It starts as a dream and ends <laughs> as a nightmare. That's, that's what happens, and especially if yeah. you, get, you get slapped in the dick with a pandemic. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's. I feel so badly for everybody who's going through that experience of ownership and ah fuck it is what it is at this point. <laughs> it right? is like it is. all you got to do is like take the help that you can get and try yeah. and kick the ball down the road and keep the doors open. Like that's what that's the position we're all in. But um, yeah. yeah, so uh, but right now you're happy where you are. You're you're enjoying it. Um, your partner's enjoying it as well. Uh, but in your future you're thinking somewhere down the line you would you would like to do your own thing yeah it would it would it is for sure a dream of ours to kind of have our own expression of uh some kind of hospitality or retail based experience based on our skill sets and obviously he's a very talented chef and i work in the field of wine so it's kind of a a power couple it's a power couple (laughs) (laughs) and uh so how many employees are working at that, uh, like, okay, well, obviously for the entire resort, I'm sure there's so many, but how, like, for, for instance, in the dining room, like how big is the dining room there? How many people have you got working? Uh, it's, well, for 30 rooms, it's actually a smaller staff than you would think in a sense. Um, I think these times are bizarre pandemic times, but sure. at the moment we have, Maybe let's, talk about, let's talk about before. Okay. Yeah. yeah, last year as an example, we yeah. would probably have mm, 20 front of house, maybe the same in the kitchen. Hmm. That, so that's, still, that's a solid cast of characters. Yeah, yeah. And do you actually, in your role there, do you actually work the tables or are you just there to direct the wine program? Uh, no, I. it's it's funny. The smaller the, the company you work for, the more you have to put your fingers in different aspects of the business, as you know. Um, Fuck so yeah, I still I, carry a tray at Sugar Run. Absolutely, <laughs> I, still, I still run plates. I still, you know, there's there's nothing that you don't do, in a sense, when you work for a small company, which right. is, I think, a really rewarding experience and something I recommend to everybody. Have both a large corporate and kind of small independent um, experiences. Yeah. So 
I would love to say that I'm just a wine director and it's glamorous and all I do is spend oodles of money on expensive wines, but um, and, no, I, pretty- and then just explain them to people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you, okay. So I, just getting into that for a second, yeah. you also are doing some teaching, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I teach the um, WSCT program. Um, so I've taught it in Kitchener, Waterloo. Um, I taught the Italian diploma class actually, which was a really fun experience um, in Toronto for Iway. I'm going to be teaching it here actually at the end, which is going to be my most interesting class, I, I think, bet. because. Okay, so that, school. sorry to interrupt but again, yeah. but that is a separate course from WSET. So like you don't mm-hmm. need any previous accreditations to jump into this Italian specific wine course. Uh, sorry, no, let me uh, correct you. Sorry. So I did, I taught the WSET Italian um, classes. So oh. out of the, yeah, out of the diploma, you have to take certain classes on France, Spain, Italy, blah, blah, blah. I taught gotcha. the Italian class. Oh, yeah. okay. I got you. Okay. And then uh, um, the Italian educator uh, that you're speaking of is for a school in Piedmont that Ian leads. Um, it's a young school, so that program hasn't really been identified yet. So we're still kind of waiting to see how that plays out. Um, that's going to look more like uh, kind of a masterclass. So they've run them in Toronto. Um, I haven't taught them yet there. but So how does someone get involved in that if they were interested in doing this specifically? And like how much would it cost them? Yeah, so for the Italian, um, for the 3IC Italian classes, I would suggest um, some, maybe some previous wine education or experience, like WSET level two would be a good um, base, I think, to take take the programs. Uh, the cost, I think they, they run in and around $300, let's say, um, and that's kind of like an all day master class, including the wines. Um, and they'll be focused on a specific region or place like central Italy would be one. And you'd learn about Tuscany and La Marche and Abruzzo, or mm. you'd learn about North Italy or Sicily, that kind of thing. What's your favorite region? Whew. That's a good question. Um, I gravitate towards kind of the fresher styles of wine. So, either Piedmont okay, in the I'm north. Gonna, I'm going to stop you and make you explain what fresher means. Uh, fair enough. Um, so think of, uh, if I guess dairy is kind of a gross thing to think of, but if you compare like whole milk to skim milk, mm-hmm. um, that would be the essence of the body of a wine. Um, mm-hmm. So a fresher, what, what would you want more on a hot day? Right. Uh, yeah. Um, wines with higher acidity, which is something that you would get from either a cool climate or growing wines at elevation. Um, wines that are kind of patio sippers versus something you drink in front of a fire. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So, and you're, then the fresher part is the kind of higher acid sort of, yeah. um, cooler climate, a little bit lighter. Like it's not something that's going to coat your teeth in redness. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. Okay. So now continue. Where did you (laughs) talk about it? That's fair. What are the spots? Um, So places that you can find wines like that are 
they're all over Italy, really. Um, but Piedmont in North Italy, because of uh, you can find some higher elevation mountainous areas in the north. Um, you don't have to say that just to suck up to me. Eh, <laughs> no, it's true. I love Piedmont. <laughs> Long before. Um, I drink a lot of Italian white, which is, um, there's a lot out there other than Pinot Grigio, not that Pinot Grigio is not delicious, but there's there's a lot of indigenous grapes that are well worth seeking out. Yeah, I'm glad that you said um, that, because I've, I've only more recently gotten into those Italian whites. Like there, people think about Italy and they think about red wine, right? And there's so, but okay, actually, this is a question I have for you. How, like there's, thousands and thousands of grape varietals in the world. And isn't there this weird thing where like 60% of those varietals come from Italy? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 to 400 registered grape, Italian grape varieties. Um, if you took the next three countries combined, I think that's France, Spain, and Portugal, they still wouldn't equal that amount. So right. to give perspective, it, it's, it's it, when the Greeks discovered or landed there, or was it the Phoenicians? I can't remember, but either way, they gave Italy the name Eno Troia, which means the land of the vine, because ah. it was just this plethora of, you know, this perfect place to, to grow grapes, um, which is kind of why I fell in love with studying it. When you get to experience that kind of diversity, um, it's like having all the crayons in the available to color yeah, your pictures it's with, you know? so cool it's so cool and okay so gun to your head desert island right now just what you're into right now what's the what's the red you're bringing what's the white you're bringing oh gosh gun to my head. it's not it's totally not a fair question but like am i picking a grape or do i have to pick a a specific wine can i pick a grape yeah grape yeah okay okay sweet that's a little bit easier. Um, can we narrow it down to just Italy so I don't have to feel guilty about the rest of the world? Sure. Okay, good. I would say Nebbiolo for the red. Um, I just think that this is the wine that goes into um, the wines of Barolo, Barbaresco, um, and a few other regions in the Alto Piemonte and North uh, North um, Italy in general. It's also the great it's that is specifically it's, it's also, sorry to interrupt you, but it also it's specifically the grape that's made me broke. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it can come in, it, it can definitely show up in some prestigious bottlings, that's for sure. Yeah, no, but sorry, I, it's but, haunting, it's a beautiful... Oh, oh that's, <laughs> they have so much going on, right? Like, holy uh, fuck, it seems like every time you take a drink of uh, any wine that's made with Nebbiolo, it's got like 15 different things going on in it. Yeah, the thing, so Nebbiolo has this incredible um, tannic structure. So I guess to explain tannins, if you were to drink um, black tea, it's mm. that drying sensation that you get on the cheeks of your, your mouth. Mm. Um, kind of makes your, it feel like you're, they're stuck. It's almost like furry. So, yeah, or you can get it from, it's, it's a compound in plants that you, that you find. Exactly, furry is a good description. So Nebbiolo is really blessed with a high tannin content. Mm -hmm. And somebody described it to me once as like, when you're drinking a Nebbiolo wine, um, is like when you are a long distance runner and you break through that runner's high, um, where it's all feels like pain and suffering, these tannins, but as soon as you 
get past that, you're rewarded with um, all these flavors and perfume and acidity and balance and freshness. Oh, so you just have to nice. get through those tannins to, to fall in love with it. Oh, that's cool. good. I want to steal that from you. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. I stole it. What else? Okay. <laughs> and then what's the white? Mm, if we're speaking about Italian wine specifically, I would probably say the Garganega grape, which is the grape that goes into making Sawabe, which is the white wine from the Veneto. Right, right, Do you know right. what that region? Do you know what that, yep. that wine? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's just a, it has a really nice kind of ripe but fresh character. Really good example. For sure. mm. Nice. Well, that's, Brie, I think we got it, buddy. This was fun. Uh, it's always great catching up with you, but it's also, well, I feel like I got like a wine education class in this tiny little podcast we did. I hope uh, I didn't numb your brain. No, no, man. Opened it. Opened it. Okay. <laughs> uh, Dan, do you want to ask? Uh, yeah, uh, if anyone wanted to get a uh, hold of you, how would be the best way to do that? Like through either social media, through like uh, Instagram or website? Yeah, no website yet. It's on in the works. Um, yeah. You can reach me through my Instagram, which is um, Brie underscore Demma. Uh, you Perfect. can find me there. I will link to that in the uh, podcast notes. So perfect. Great talking to you, Brie. Thanks for doing this. We really appreciate it. Uh, enjoy your time out there. I can't wait for you to reopen and be unquarantined. I know you're under quarantine right now because you just flew back. Um, yeah. And for you, the two of you to get back to work. Uh, and I don't know, hopefully one day down the line, you come back to our area of the world and I get to see you on a regular basis again. Love you. True. Good luck with your opening, eh? Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. All right. We'll talk soon.